Father, we pray that you would meet us this morning, that you would open our hearts and open our eyes, that we may have ears to hear and eyes to see the call that you have placed on us, the freedom that you have given us, the love that you showed towards us, and the life that we are free to live before you by your grace. So we ask and we pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to start just by noticing the flow of the whole passage. We can only serve one master, we're told in verse 24. Right? That's where he says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You're going to love one or hate the other. Right? So he says you can only have one master. Then it's interesting in verse 25 when you get this whole thing about being anxious and the way God meets our needs. It starts with therefore. So it is the conclusion. It's the application of you can't serve two masters. Therefore, he says, I tell you, do not be anxious. Therefore, he wants to talk about life's material concerns. You can't have two masters, so let's talk about life's material concerns. Why? Well, he says, as you get down to verse 32, that the, the Gentiles seek after those things. They pursue them. When he says, seek, the Gentiles seek them. Right? The word there is a strong one. It's to pursue something. It's to strive after something, to run after something, to go after something. Because it's their chief concern. But he says, you're not to be like them. Why? Verse 32, you have a heavenly father that knows your needs. He cares for you. And so in verse 33, he says, you can't have two masters. You can't serve God in money. Therefore, don't be anxious about all these things that concern money. The material concerns of life. Those are the things that the Gentiles run after and seek after. But you... Your heavenly Father cares for you. Therefore, verse 33, calls his people to different priorities. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And he says that when we do, our heavenly Father is going to provide for us. Right? He's not saying that we don't care about those things, for obviously we must. We, we must 
give thought to them and, and seek to provide them at some level. But <clears throat> he is talking about our heart's passions, right? He's talking about the things that drive and govern our lives. And that's what he's saying, going back to 24 and working from the beginning again. He's telling us that you can only have one master passion, right? You can only have one first love, kind of like marriage, right? You can only have one first love. All kinds of problems enter in if you've got a second one, right? Or if that somebody is, is in, in between or in the way. Like, this is exactly where he's going. Like, you can, there can only be one, right? There can only be one master love. There can only be one that reigns in our hearts. And Jesus says we all have something. We're all driven and governed by something that we love the most. And so the question becomes, what do we love the most? What is it that governs? What is it, what is it that is the master of all the other passions and concerns? It's not that those aren't real concerns, but what is it that is the master even of those concerns? The master And Jesus offers us a very simple fact when he starts this all out in verse 24. The very simple fact, no one can serve two masters. It's as simple as that. It's a very simple fact that we should understand. You can't have two. You can't serve two. You can try. We often try. We often live with divided hearts. And we often live with, you know, this this dualism that goes on in our hearts. But he says, it doesn't work. There can only be one master passion, one first love, right? This is the very first commandment. It's what he gave Israel from the first day, isn't it? He said, you shall have no other gods before me. There can only be one. There can only be one master passion, love, God, that that reigns over us, over his people. There can only be one ultimate. And so our first love, he says, belongs to God. We were made... Is as obvious as a day is long. If there is a God, then he should be our first love. He should be our master passion. He should be our God, right? So there is a God. He says, Jesus is just telling us that, that then our first love belongs to him. You were made by him and for him. You were designed to find your satisfaction in him, to know him and to love him and to trust him and to walk with him. So these other things don't rise up in our hearts in that way to, take, to, to, to drive us, to control us because he... He's a loving father to us. But if God is not the master passion of our hearts and our lives, there there will be something else. We will be enslaved to something. The Bible simply says, basically, that everybody serves someone, something. That every human being, we're designed this way. And if we don't serve him, we will serve something else. And most often, that's we're serving ourselves by serving other things and trying to satisfy and trying to meet our needs or trying to get ahead in life or trying to do whatever it is. Ultimately, if we don't serve him, we serve ourselves, which is why Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross if you're going to follow me because you can't serve you and me, right? One of us is going to have to take the back seat. There can only be one Chief, one Lord, one King, one Master. And he says, it's not you, and it's not me. And so in verse 24, though, as he does this, it's interesting that he specifically warns us about one of the most subtle and dangerous rivals in the human heart. 
in a way that he doesn't elsewhere in Scripture, that he, the way he points out as he walks through this, you can't have two masters, you're going to hate one and love the other, or you're going to be devoted to the one and, and despise the other. And then he makes a statement, you cannot serve God in money, and he gets down to brass tacks. The number one rival, where he doesn't put a lot of things in that place, and I think you could fill in that blank with many things, but... But he puts it in there and he comes after to say, whether it was 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago or now, the number one rival for the master place in the human heart is money. Or as this is what the ESV says, right? If you're reading with me in the ESV, it says money. But as you know, the word in the Greek, or most of you would know, and the word in the Greek and the way it's transliterated in some other is the word mammon. All right, have you heard you can't serve both God and mammon? Uh, because that's the Greek word. And I kind of like that. I, I wish that the ESV even would go because it's broader than money. But money speaks to us probably most clearly. And it includes money. But it's, it's really a word that, that goes after riches. Because in those days, a lot of people may not have had a lot of gold and silver, but they, they had property, they had animals, they had flocks, they had, you know, different kinds of things, even expensive clothes, and those kind of things were of wealth. And that's what the word is talking about. It, it's not just money, but it's all that money can buy. Right? It's worldly goods, worldly things, right? It's your houses and cars and our luxuries, right? It's stuff. It's, it's our vacations and our creature comforts and our sense of security. All that money can buy is, in that sense, our wealth, our mammon, our worldly security. And this is why mammon money exercises such power over the human heart and rivals even God for the supremacy in our hearts, as we make choices and as we seek to live out our lives. It's why in the New Testament and the Old Testament, it warns us to guard our hearts against idolatry. And idolatry, Old Testament and New, is loving something or anything before or above God. Right? Idolatry is having a first love that's not God. And the issue here. In idolatry and in this whole question of who is our master, the issue at stake in all of this, he says, is love. Because as soon as he says you can't serve two masters, he says you're going to hate one and you're going to love the other. You're going to love. Right? And the issue is who has your love, your first love, your passion, your commitment. That when there are rivals, when there are conflicts, when there are options, you know, who has the mastery? Who gets your obedience, right? Who gets your attention and your direction? Who is the, the one? And he, what is it? He says, you can, you're going to love one and you're going to hate the other. You're going to be devoted to the one and you're going to despise the other. You can't serve God in money. But that sounds extreme, doesn't it? You're going to love one and hate the other. We're like, no, like I really love God. And yeah, I, I love this and I love that. But it's just, what do you mean hate? That if I love money, then I hate God, right? That's to say, whoever has the supremacy, second place isn't lesser love, is hate, he says, right? You're going to love one and you're going you're to hate the other. He's a rival for your affection, for your 
choices, etc. But this is the language Jesus uses. Do you remember in Luke chapter 14? He says this, if anyone wants to come after me, he doesn't just have to deny himself and take up his cross. If he wants to come after me, he's going to have to hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and his sisters. Yes, he's even going to have to hate his own life or he can't be my disciple. If you're going to love me, everything else, again, there's not lesser loves. Now, we all know Jesus isn't telling us family. He created family affection and the love of family. But what he, he, is, he is, most of us would think, there are others might go differently in this. I think he's hyperbole to say that when you love something that deeply, that passionately, first love, all other loves will pale in comparison. Right? And, and even some people might say, well, if you keep choosing that one right there, I'm like, what, you, you hate me. Why do you hate me? You never choose my option. You never choose my will. You never choose, what, do you hate me? And it's like, well, no, that would be a hyperbole, but it does say that there is someone whom I love so much that when there's a conflict or when there's an interest, Jesus, right, the Lord God has my loyalty. He has my choices. Other loves pale out of devotion. He says there's a love and a devotion that goes in a direction. It's in 1 John 2.15. He says, John is writing, he says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't just diminished. (laughs) It's not in him. In other words, God desires, deserves, demands to be supreme, to be number one, and to put God in any other place but number one. He won't have that place, so to speak. He, he will not be marginalized. He will be, God will be God. He is king no matter what we think or what we do. See, this passage is about the love of the Father. The passage that we're in is about the love of the Father. Whom do you love? And that's why he puts this in this, you know, First John there is summarizing this passage in many ways where he says don't love the world or the things in the world. That's where he goes into in terms of being anxious about all those other things. Don't love them so much. Don't be worried about them so much. You know, that, that those become the driving factors in your life when it is the Lord God who holds that place. Do not love the things of the world or the love of the Father is going to be crowded out. And you're going to be choosing not God when you should be choosing God, his will, his way, his word, right? Obedience to him, his purposes, his goals, his kingdom, not my kingdom. Your will be done, not my will be done. That's the prayer we've been taught to pray Your will be done, not my will, right? That's first place. That's first love. Even my own will, that's where he says even you have to hate even your own life, like your own will. You have to deny yourself if you're going to follow him. And so Jesus says the greatest commandment. It's very much like the first command. When he's asked, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus, in all of the Bible? Like, which one is it? And Jesus says... Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. That's what he's saying right here when he says you can't serve two masters. There can only be one master love, only one master passion, 
all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's the first commandment to have no other gods beside him. He must be our first love. Joshua 22, 5. Where Josh is speaking to the Israelites, and I want us to notice in this text where he calls us to the love of God. Old Testament and New, Jesus, when he's answering the question, what is the greatest commandment, is quoting the Old Testament. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the same command. And here as you have Joshua speaking to God's people, uh, and he speaks to them of the love of God, I want you to see the other things that he says. He says, to love the Lord your God, to walk in his way. What does it mean to love the Lord your God? To walk in all of his ways, to keep all of his commandments, to cling to him, to trust him, to desire him, to hope in him, and to serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. That's what he says, to love him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, is to walk with him and to obey him and to serve him with an undivided heart. Now, it's instructive when Jesus teaches the priority of God's kingdom, which is where this drives to, seek first the kingdom, that he warns us about the love of money. It's instructive that he's driving after our first love and seeking and prioritizing the kingdom of God, and he warns us about the love of money, right? You'll love the one and hate the other. This is why in the Old Testament, when God initiates the tithe, it's not any 10%. It's the first 10%. Right? This is the way it, it is. It's the first 10%. He will not be marginalized. He will not be the middle percent or the leftover percent. He will be the first percent. Right? This is his place in all of life. This is God being God and helping us to know him and to love him and to walk with him as God. 1 Timothy 6, 10 and 11. Again, you think Paul is thinking of this text or similar ones when he says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the number one rival. You can't love God and money. You'll love the one and hate the other. The love of money, it's the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. They've pierced themselves through with many pangs of sorrow. But as for you, men and women of God, flee those things and pursue righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God and his Righteousness. It's a summary of our text. You can't serve both God and money. Flee those things and seek first and pursue the righteousness of God and the righteous God. To seek first, what all of this is telling us is we must be free of the love of money if God is going to have the preeminent place in our lives. And that preeminent rivalry with money can take extreme forms. It, it can look like greed, building my own kingdom, patting my own comforts, making sure I have and enjoy what I want. It can look like greed, and it is interesting that Jesus chooses to talk about worry, which is, in, in essence, not having enough. And both extremes are the reality. It can take our place. Lynn and I were talking about this in other parts of the world. How does it preach? I said, it actually preaches very well because where Jesus goes is to worry. 
our worry about these things, about not having enough, and what that can do also in our faith and our trust for God, it diminishes faith. It says it right in the middle of the passage, oh, you have little faith, right? It diminishes our faith when we either are pursuing them and driving and, and making the choices, my will, not your will being done when it comes to kingdom building and comforts, you know, or, or worry in terms of how we then proceed in handling these things. And so he talks about worry, and that's why I said in verse 25, you see it starts with the word therefore, which always connects you back to what he just said. You can't have two masters. You can't love them both in the way you need to. You can't have devotion to God and to material things and material wealth and materialism. You can't serve God in money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. Do not worry. And then he proceeds to address life's material concerns. And again, they're real concerns, my friends, right? And whatever that hierarchy of needs are, you know, food, clothing, and shelter are primary, right? So he's not, it's not to be dismissed that they're real needs, but he is saying as real as they are. There's always one bigger. There's always one that governs those. Since you can't serve two masters, you need to trust God. You are a loving Father who delights to provide for you. Right? Isn't that what he says over these next number of verses? Right? He encourages us, he commands us, it's in the imperative, do not be anxious about our lives, which you and I know is easier said than done. But it is the call. You can easily say it's the invitation to not live there, to be free from those things. And so verses 25 to 32, as we look at it, this whole section then is about God's goodness, about his lordship, about his sovereignty and his fatherhood and his provision for his people, his love for his people, that he knows you need all these things. And he's your heavenly father who cares for and provides for you, right? And he says, Jesus says, don't worry because God is your father and he will take care of you. See, the problem with many of us is that we're not entirely sure that's true. That if I'm going to be faithful and to obey him in certain ways, I may put some of the things at risk in my life, or I may lose some things, or not have the things that I want to have the way that I want to have them, and to trust God and to do what he says. Do I trust him that he will provide what I need? Now, Jesus understands our weakness in all of this. He understands this struggle in the human heart. And he says it's, it's going to be there. He knows it's there. He's telling you it's there. 2,000 years later, we're still having the same struggle. It's not gotten better. I would suggest it's gotten worse because we are the richest people in the history of the world, in the richest country on the planet at this moment. Just a fact of, of life. We are the richest people in the history of the world and in the world right now. And so he calls creation as witness of how the Father orders and provides for all of his creation, right? We see in verse 25, 
when he talks about not worrying about what you will eat and what you will drink and about your body. He says the body is not just clothing and, and, and food. The life is more than just food. We're not just bodies. We're not just material creatures. Um, you know, we're more than that. We are spirit and we live in a spiritual world and we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and we live in another kingdom, a kingdom that we're called to seek. He says we're more than food and clothing and our basic necessities. And he gives these two categories of food and clothing. And he says that we're much more than these things. And if, these are, if this is all we do, is to pursue these things, or they have the highest place in our lives, we're not living, he says, we're just surviving. Because the meaning of life, he says, is found in the seeking of God and his kingdom and his righteousness. He says the, high, the meaning of life for which you were created. And so he gives us these categories, what you will eat and what you will wear. And then he calls the birds to witness. He calls creation to witness. In verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow and they don't gather in barns. And your heavenly Father feeds them. God provides for them. God cares for them. Or in verse 28, he calls the lilies to witness. And he says, if I can find it, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies. Of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed better. How God takes care of that which is here today and gone tomorrow. And he says, and you are his children. He's assuring his followers that God loves them, that he is a father to you. That he cares for you. Right in verse 26 he says about the birds. Are you not more valuable? Right in verse 30 when he's talking about the lilies of the field. And he says much more will he clothe you. He will take care of your basic needs. And he's driving forward in this. And you see the rhetorical questions. that come in 26, 27, 28, 30. Rhetorical questions drive it forward. He doesn't answer the questions because they're obvious and you know that the answers are what the answers are. Are you not more valuable than they, 26? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour or to the span of his life? Why, 28, are you anxious about clothing? Verse 30, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? He's driving forward what? The love of God for his children. You have a heavenly father. Many of us live like orphans, trusting in all the wrong things. Pursuing all the wrong things. Being governed by the wrong things. In verse 31, he comes full circle and he bookends the argument because he started at the beginning. Therefore, verse 25, do not be anxious. Right In verse 31, he comes full circle after making this driving argument about God's love. And he says again, therefore, the conclusion is do not be anxious. What will we eat? What will we wear? What will we drink? 
The logic of the whole thing is the birds and the flowers don't worry. Why should the very children of God, created in his image, redeemed in the blood of Christ, adopted into his family, why would they worry? Why, why would they live like they have no heavenly father? And we remember all of this is the therefore to the fact that we cannot serve two masters, God and mammon and material things. Right? This is all the answer. He says you can't do it, therefore. Let me assure you and help you to see God as your father, as the lover of your soul. See, the Gentiles, verse 32, the Gentiles, when you read that word now, you should just read into it those who don't know God, right? That the Gentiles, those who don't know God, seek after these things. They, they have to pursue these things. Their life is about these things because their life doesn't have a greater meaning, a higher meaning. They don't have a heavenly father who has a kingdom and a purpose. And so their purpose is very small and very narrow. It's only as big as their material world and their material needs. The Gentiles seek these things. And he says, your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. And parents, any of you that are a parent, a grandparent, if you know a parent, do you know what your children need? I don't mean what they want, the latest that they saw in a commercial or something. I mean, you know what your children need <laughs> that don't provide for them. Clothing, you feed them, right? He's saying, you have a father <laughs> who cares for you. Children get to be carefree because you care about Right? Children get to live in, in, in the spontaneity of freeness because their father will feed them. They have no worry that when they get home tonight whether they're going to eat or not. At least probably in our circles there are those where that's not true. And it becomes one of the tragedies of life. When the fathers and the mothers and the, 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 they don't provide. But this is where God takes us and he is everything that was intended in the, in the parent. God does not want his children to live like they're orphans. We are free, he says. All of this is driving to freedom. The argument, the logic of the passage to say you can't serve two masters. And since you have a father that cares for you and provides for you, you are free, therefore, to serve the right master, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You're free to do that. To not be anxious because the father loves you and he says he knows your needs and he provides for us. And so he calls us out of our worry. That's what verse 33 is. Your heavenly father knows what you need. So seek first the kingdom of God. He calls us out of our worry to our first love, our master passion, which should be his kingdom and his righteousness. That's what's being elevated in all of this, right? Is, is, is the service of God in his kingdom to know and to love and to serve and to walk with him. He calls us out of our worry and he commands us to not worry because there's this promise 
That when you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that all these things, verse 33, will be added to you. It's been said that if you seek the earth and earthly things, that you'll miss out on heaven. But if you seek heaven and you seek first the kingdom, everything, you'll get earth thrown in. All right, that's what Jesus is saying here. Seek first the kingdom and all these things will be thrown into the deal because your father cares for you. Right? He's not saying that those needs aren't legitimate. They're real needs. He's affirming them. But he wants to get our hearts right about those things and about who God is in our lives. That they would be in proper place, in proportion, proper priority. The whole passage before us is about love and devotion. Who you love, you'll love one and hate the other. It's about love and devotion. It's about loyalties and priorities. It's about faith and about trust. Because those who know and love and have faith and trust in are free. Free to serve the right masters. We can't serve two. You can't serve God and money. Mammon will rival and strive for the mastery in your soul to keep you worried about, driving about, driving toward, have the direction of your attention toward. But this is mismatched priorities, weakens faith. It strikes me right in the middle of it, which I often call myself, because I often feel that way. At the end of verse 30, oh, you of little faith. Oh, you have little faith. Because the all-powerful God is your Father, the life of faith is a life of, of risk and of other kinds of priorities and desires and passions. Jesus assures us that the Father will faithfully care for his children. And so we're free. The passage is trying to speak freedom to you and to me. B.B. Warfield says this, We are to seek, but not what the heathen seek, worldly ease and goods and advantages, comforts and entertainments. We are to seek heavenly things. Hence, it bans one class of seeking and it commands the other. Our chief end is not to gain earthly things and experiences, but heavenly ones, to lay up our treasure in heaven, not on earth where moth and rust destroy, but to lay up our treasures in heaven. Right? And you recognize there our chief end, the chief end of man is to glorify God. It's Reformation Sunday. It's appropriate to do Catechism 1. Right? The chief end of man, the chief purpose of man is to glorify God. And to enjoy him forever. 1 Samuel 7.3 tells us, direct your heart to, to the Lord and to serve him only. And I think this is a lot of what it's about. It's not that these other things aren't important, but there is a direction of our heart. There is that which we love the, with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind, all of our strength. There is only one that it can be. And he says we should be enthralled with God, that we should be enthralled with Christ. We should be enthralled with his kingdom and not enthralled with the world and the things that it has to offer. 
It's not that we're not concerned about them or they don't have a place, but the, the enthrallment. It's one of those things that if you get the first thing, it's like the, the buttons. If you get the first button right, they all line up. Right? And they're just saying, you got to get that first button right. And there are other buttons and they need to be buttoned. He says, but you'll get them right if God is God to you. And you get that first button wrong and it gets messy really quick. Embarrassing. Jesus wants to reign unrivaled in our hearts. He refuses to be marginalized. He wants our love and our worship, our gifts, our songs, our tithes, our offerings, our mornings, our days. He wants us to, his will to be done and not our will to be done. He wants us to direct our hearts to the Lord and to serve him only. When I survey the wondrous cross, one of my favorite hymns says, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing and so divine demands my life, my soul, my all. The Father knows what we need, so we are free to serve him. The simple fact is you cannot serve two masters. You can only have one master love. So let us seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And pray for the grace to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Pray with me. Father in heaven, you know our hearts. As I stand here this morning, I am aware of the ways that this rivalry tugs at us every day. That there is so much that wants our attention, so much that wants us to give it our priority. There is so much that we will find ourselves serving and giving ourselves to. But help us this morning to lift our eyes, to see our Father, and to be set free by his love and his grace, so that we may again be consecrated and renewed in our passion and desire to seek your kingdom and your righteousness. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.